Welcome, everybody, to episode six of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. So the main topic that we're going to get into this week is a gear breakdown for my 2021 February goat hunt. So this is going to be a solo winter rifle goat hunt. The gear list is pretty extensive, and there's a lot of stuff on it that I haven't had the opportunity to test out yet. So I'm looking forward to diving into this because I think it's going to be really useful for a lot of people. Even if you're not going on this exact hunt, I think there's a lot of elements of this hunt that will pop up in other hunts. So it should be beneficial for a lot of the listeners. As usual, what I did was I threw out a Q&A on my Instagram yesterday in preparation for the podcast today. So I have a pretty good idea of the flow that I want to go through and how I'm going to break down all of my gear. Then when I get to the end, I'm going to go through everybody's questions. And if I haven't covered them in enough detail already, I'll dive in a little bit deeper and see if I can add a little more color and context to each of the individual questions. I'd just like to say that I'm super impressed with the engagement that we've been getting on this podcast. Every time I throw up one of those Q&As, I get really thoughtful responses, things that I wouldn't have thought to talk about otherwise. So I really appreciate the effort that you guys have been putting out there to participate in the podcast. And it really shows in the quality of the podcasts that, that I'm putting out. So thank you for taking the time to participate and engage. On that note... As always, if you could take a quick second to either give this a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to it on, or give it a like and a share if you're watching it on YouTube, that would help me out a lot. The more comments, likes, and engagement you get from your audience, the higher up the algorithm pushes your content, and the more new eyeballs are going to get a chance to see the content. So again, thank you for doing that. Everybody who's already done it, I really appreciate it. Um... I'm kind of in shock about, you know, how much feedback I've already been given. So one more time, thank you everybody for taking the time to do that. It means a lot to me and it shows me that I'm on the right track. So I will keep putting as much effort into this thing, knowing that it's landing for you guys. So one last time, thanks again for that. We do have a lot to cover, so I'm going to be pretty brief with our kind of like our weekly column sections. Uh, however, I will cover each one of them in a little bit of detail. And I'm going to see if I can kind of string them together in a more logical way. So for the training segment this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about mindset because as we get into the gear breakdown, I want to talk a little bit about the solo hunting mindset and how that may affect success uh, or failure for some of you in your solo hunting endeavors. So let's take a minute and talk about mindset when it comes to training. This might come off as kind of like, cheesy or overblown or a little bit over the top for some people. And I'm not always able to achieve this, but when I go to the gym, I think I'm going to war. That's how serious I take it. I literally have certain kinds of music that I listen to on the way to the gym. Um, I have a certain headspace that I'm trying to get into. I'm not always successful at this. And the reason I thought this would be a good topic is that I had a leg day the other day. And it's funny, I was just talking about leg day last week. Leg days tend to amplify everything that's going on because they're like the most intense day you can have. So if anything's going on, it will really show up in your leg days. But my head just wasn't in it. There's no other way to put it. I was off in la la land and my workouts suffered because of it. I log all my workouts. I wasn't hitting PRs. I wasn't even able to match the last week's 
performance. My diet had been on point. Supplements had been on point. Sleep had been on point. There was no practical, physical reason to explain the lack of performance other than the lack of mental clarity and focus. And I need one of those every now and then to kind of kick me in the ass. And I like to think of it like this. We're all busy. We all got shit to do. So if I'm taking time out of my day to do something, whether that be to go training or practice my bow at the range or work on this podcast, if I'm doing something, I want it to be as successful as possible, or I want it to have as large an impact in my life as it possibly can for the time that I have allowed that activity to take within my day. Let me see if I can phrase that another way. If I'm going to spend time on an activity, I want to be as effective as I can during that time. I don't go to the gym to fuck around. I don't go to the archery range to fuck around. I go to these places to get better, and I want to get as better as possible, as fast as possible. And the only way I can do that is with an appropriate mindset. So yeah, I have all kinds of self-talk I do on the way to the gym, like, cheesy shit, like suck it up, buttercup. Don't be a bitch. Fuck you. Like that's literally how I talk to myself. Um, you're going to crush it today. I will go over my logs from the last week. I will look at the reps and the weights that I hit and I'll visualize beating those reps and those weights. And that doesn't matter if it's a weighted backpack hike or if it's leg day or whatever it is I'm going to do. I take time to get my mind right. And again, I want to preface this. I'm not always successful at this. And in fact, the reason this is coming up is because I failed at this. So I don't want to come off as this arrogant son of a bitch who's like always mentally perfect. I'm not. I'm talking about the ideal. Like this is what I'm striving for. That 10% of the time when the planets align and everything is perfect, this is what it feels like. And when all those things line up like that, it feels like perfection. Like there's no other way to explain it. Things feel lighter than they should. They go up for more reps than they should. The time goes by faster than it should. It's like you're, you're in another place. I can't even, and I'm probably going way off the deep end here for most people. And I don't even really know, you know, what is the purpose of, of me sharing this information? The purpose is people focus a lot on the X's and O's. They focus a lot on how much food should I eat? How many reps should I do? How, how heavy a weight should I do? What type of intensity should I have? None of that means shit if your head's not in the game. And I'm going to get into why this is a perfect analogy, but it doesn't take a lot to extrapolate where I'm heading with this in hunting. I don't care what kind of bow you have, what kind of rifle you have, what unit you've drawn a tag in. If your fucking head's not in it, you're not going to be successful. So for me, first and foremost, that's where the battle starts with the mindset. Everything else comes after that. So I realize that night might not be the technical training tips some of you are, are looking for this week, but here's the tip for this week. Fuck the technical training tips. Give your head a shake, clear your mind, and try and be completely present for your next training session, whatever that session may be. And, and try and note the difference in impact or performance between half showing up and showing up and absolutely crushing it. 
All right. We're going to circle back on some mindset stuff, but that's really all I have to add as far as the physical training stuff goes. I really enjoy that stuff. If people want, I can post some good books that I've read about mindset um, that kind of help me get my game to where it is these days. And I still have a long ways to go. So I'm going to segue right into training. So it's kind of interesting. This podcast is probably going to be released on um, Christmas or the day after. So I want to take a moment and wish you all Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever the fuck you choose to, to celebrate over the holidays. I hope given the circumstances, you were able to spend some time with family and friends to whatever degree you feel safe doing. And yeah, I just, I hope it was as good of a holiday as it could have been. So what I want to say about diet is just enjoy yourself. No matter what kind of goals you have dietarily, this doesn't mean you need to go stuff yourself and be a piece of shit and eat like an asshole, but it's okay to like, let go. I I was reading this quote on Instagram the other day, and I can't remember exactly the, the way it went, but it was like, nobody gets jacked in a week and nobody gets fat in a week. You get where you get with consistency over time. So letting it go for a few days over the holidays and not counting calories and just enjoying yourself is not going to fundamentally change your physique or your conditioning in a long-term way. It's just not. It's not the way the human body works. And I think it's more important sometimes to take a mental break, refresh, and just enjoy life for what life has to offer than it is to be like solely focused on performance all the time. So that's my two cents for diet this week. Fuck your diet. Have fun spend time with friends and family, and enjoy everything that life has to offer. So the piece of gear that I'm going to talk about this week is not a piece of hunting gear. It's a piece of like fitness gear, and it's called a Tim Tam, and it's basically a percussive massaging device. The one that you always see on social media is called a Theragun. There's a bunch of different brands. I specifically bought the Tim Tam because it's a bit more of a commercial or industrial grade like a professional grade. Um, It's a little more expensive, but the motor is a higher quality. It goes a little faster. It's got a little bit more power. But the further I'm getting into my training and the harder that I push myself, the more I'm needing to focus on um, kind of soft tissue manipulation in order to just keep the machine working. Because I'm like getting some cramps or things are getting tight and need to be loosened up. So I don't necessarily think you have to buy the Tim Tam itself. I mean, have a look around. Maybe there's another version on sale. I think they're all basically okay. Some of them tend to be a little bit better than others. But if you are someone who trains consistently, take some time to take care of yourself. Like a little self-care goes a long way. I've got all kinds of like weird balls and rollers and sticks and shit kicking around that I can like need muscle tissue with and roll around on the floor to break up, you know, um, really stiff fascia and all that other kind of stuff. So I am super happy with the Tim Tam. I haven't tried any of the other percussive massage devices, so I can't speak to them specifically, but I am very happy with the Tim Tam. So I do feel confident recommending that to people. Okay, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, the gear list is particularly lengthy, so I'm going to cut the introduction component of the podcast short this week, and we're going to dive right into the gear list. Now, 
Before I get into the gear list, I want to talk a little bit about solo hunting in general. And I think I might do a full podcast just on this topic alone at some point in the near future, because I think it's really interesting. But just because this is such an intense hunt, I think it was, I think it's important to give people who may not have done it or who may have done it and failed at it some context and some kind of thoughts from myself around solo hunting and what may make it challenging and, and, and what I think you need to do in order to be successful at it. First thing I'm going to say, and this might sound like an asshole comment to make, but it's not for everybody. You might not be cut out for solo hunting. It just might not be something that you enjoy. I don't hunt solo to be a badass. I hunt solo because I like it. I like going to remote locations by myself for extended periods of time. I enjoy it. It's not something I have to make myself do. This is another interesting question. People are talking about motivation all the time, and you always hear people asking on Instagram and other social media platforms, you know, how do you stay motivated to work out all the time? I don't even understand that question. I, I Like, that is like Greek. Like, I literally, those words put together into a sentence make no sense to my brain. How do you motivate yourself to work out? How the fuck do you stop yourself from working out? Like it's the, it's the highlight of my day every single day. It's the one thing I can't wait to do. It's the, it's the thing that I put at the end of my day because I can use it as a tool to make me do all that other shit I don't want to do. Solo hunting is the same way. You hear people like, how do you stick it out back there? And how do you force yourself and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think it, you're, it's probably not for you. If that's the question that you're asking yourself, like, how am I going to endure this? I would take a second look at the type of hobbies and activities you have and ask yourself if this is really the way you want to spend your time. And I'm not trying to sound like a dick and I'm not trying to sound arrogant, but I don't think people understand that like, this is not something that people who love this, we don't need to make ourselves do it. We love doing it. So ask yourself, is this something I actually love doing? Because that's going to create a completely different paradigm and perspective as far as how you look at it. Now, that's going to segue right into the like the kind of other element of solo hunting that I want to talk on. And I think it's important to talk about this when we're doing a gear podcast because people think success and failure primarily resides within your planning and your gear. Like if I just know what pair of pants to buy and if I just know what pair of boots to wear and I know what unit to go to, then I'll be successful. I will say right now, I am not the most experienced hunter in the world. There's tons of people who are way better than me, but the success that I have had has led me to the conclusion that that shit doesn't matter nearly as much as you think it does. I mean, there's dudes killing studs in fucking Levi's and work boots. Like you don't need the fancy stuff. Now is gear going to help you stay out there longer and increase your, your probability if you have everything else taken care of? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. What I'm trying to say is that when it comes to solo hunting, it's not your boots that are going to send you home. It's not bringing the wrong kind of mountain house that's going to send you home. 
What's going to send you home is an inability to spend extended periods of time with no one but yourself. It's unlike any other experience, and most people don't actually ever do it. Like, ask yourself this right now. When was the last time you spent 24 hours without seeing another human being? Okay, now go multiply that by 10. And then tell me what it feels like to spend 10 days without communicating with another human being. I bet you 98% of the people on listening to this podcast have no clue what's that, what that's like because they've never had the opportunity to do it. I'm kind of shocked by that. Like, I don't understand maybe because what I used to do for work, I used to spend a lot of time by myself. I feel more at home by myself in the mountains than I do anywhere else. It's, I'm not saying it's not difficult and there isn't challenging components to it, but I'm comfortable by myself with my own mind. And I understand this might be getting like a little bit woo-woo for some of you. And if it is, just fast forward the next couple minutes. I promise we will get to like tent reviews and more practical shit here shortly. But I don't think enough people talk about this woo-woo shit. And I think this is where you are going to disproportionately affect your likelihood for success. If you can wrap your head around the mental component. And the first step of that mental component, there's other things that we can get into on later podcasts, but the first step is a comfortability with yourself, free of all other influences. We're not forced to confront ourselves on a regular basis because we're constantly distracted by everything happening around us. It's either the TV going on at night or the kids screaming because they're hungry or the wife, you know, asking you to take out the garbage or standing in line at the grocery. Like there is a never ending barrage of distractions that rob us of the opportunity to confront our own minds free of distraction. And there's no other, there's no way to replicate that. Like there's no way to short circuit the training for being by yourself in the mountains. It's not like you can just go do it for an hour, 10 times, and that will prepare you to go do it for 10 days. It's, there is no training for this other than doing it. And just because you've never done it doesn't mean you can't do it. Just because you're scared to do it doesn't mean you can't do it. I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from doing solo hunts. What I am trying to do is if you can appreciate that you might run into some psychological struggles on the mountain that have nothing to do with the things you thought you were going to be struggling with and have more to do with and weird shit comes into your mind, man. Like, I don't know how else to get into this, but like chicks you broke up with 15 years ago, you start second guessing it. Not like I started almost wanting to cry one day because I was thinking about my daughter and like, it's just the weirdest shit, man, just bubbles up to the surface that you hadn't even considered in years and decades. And the reason it comes bubbling up to the surface is because there's nothing around you to distract you from noting it. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is just appreciate that that might happen. Be prepared for that happening. And when it does happen, because here's what happens, your mind instantly starts to rationalize why you should leave. 
And it's really fucking good at convincing you that it has your own best interests at, at heart. And I know this because I failed before. I've talked my, I've gone in for 10 days and come out after seven for no other reason than I mentally broke. I just, I didn't foresee these challenges coming. And when my mind came up with, oh, I should probably go home and spend some time with the family and oh, I've given, you know, you just talk yourself into it and you don't even realize it until a week or two after you got home and you're like, what the fuck, man? There was no logical reason for me to leave. My brain fucked me. Because I wasn't prepared. All right, listen, really long rant. At the end of the day, just recognize that there is there are psychological challenges to solo hunting that there are really no way to prepare yourself for. I still think you should do it. I still think you can have a high likelihood of success, but just recognize there's going to be some struggles. All right, let's dive into the actual shit that most of you Click to play on this podcast to learn about. And that's the gear that I'm going to take on my solo goat hunt and why I chose this specific gear. So I have a pretty extensive spreadsheet that I use that breaks down my pack into several constituent elements. And it also tells me what each of those elements weigh. So it gives me a better kind of comprehensive overview. So what I'm going to start with first is like, total pack weight, and then how that's broken down. Okay. So when I hit the trailhead, my pack is going to weigh 69.27 pounds. So this includes my weapon, my camera gear, my optics, my food, all my miscellaneous gear, and the clothes that I have packed. It does not include the clothes that I'm wearing. Okay. So it's almost a 70 pound pack, but that includes everything that is quite heavy. I'm going to get into the breakdown here. I have almost 10 pounds of camera gear that the average individual would not have. So if you think about a 60 pound pack for a normal person to be going on a six to seven day hunt in the winter, because that's the other thing. There's a lot of really heavy shit in this pack that would not be there on like a summer or a fall hunt. So it seems a little bit heavy and it probably is a little bit heavy, but it's necessarily heavy. And I'm more than capable of, of hiking with a 70 pound pack. So I understand what I'm getting into. I guess I just wanted to mention that because for most people, like a 45 pound pack is a really big deal to hike around with, like to head in on a hunt with like 45 to 55 pounds is pretty heavy. So when you start getting like North of 65, 70 pounds, I start kind of getting a little bit anxious about most people because you're going to get a mile or two miles deep and be like, what the fuck did I get myself into? So if you are going to do a hunt like this, and if you are going to pack this heavy, Make sure you've done some training with this kind of weight and you understand what that feels like on your body. It also helps that I'm walking around at 255 pounds right now. A 180 pound dude carrying a 70 pound pack is completely different math than a 260 pound dude carrying a 70 pound pack. So that's another benefit that I have in my favor right now. Okay. So seeing we're spending so much time talking about the pack, let's start with the pack itself. So I use a Kafaru fulcrum with a tactical frame. Let me talk about that for a moment. The fulcrum is a gigantic 
pack. I think it is at base 7,800 cubic inches. And then by the time you put the guide lid and a couple of pockets, I'm up north of 9,200 cubic inches, which is an insane amount of space for most people. I like having more space than, than less. To me, the Fulcrum is the perfect backpack because I can, I can open up the side wings, fill up the main tube, and I have a gigantic pack that I can put whatever I want in it. I'm also not a big fan of meat shelves, so I like that I can put my meat in contractor bags inside my main compartment of my bag and not have to fuck around with like detaching things and having a pack that sticks out eight feet from my back. I don't like it. I like putting everything in my pack and I can stabilize it the way the pack is meant to be stabilized. And then when I want to switch into day hunting mode, I just collapse that main compartment, cinch down the wings as tight as I can, and I hunt out of the two main wing pockets, and I don't even go into the main compartment. And I find it's like a really tight package that way. So for me, I like the fact that I can own one pack and it does everything. Now, I do use the tactical frame. Most people should be going with uh, the duplex ultralight from Kafaru. The reason I didn't is that I was talking with Aaron Snyder on the phone. This is maybe three years ago, basically explaining what I tend to get up to, where I tend to hunt, the filming and all the rest of it, how big I was. And he was like, listen, just get the tactical frame. It could be overkill, but you're never going to need to worry about your frame failing if you go with the tactical. So for those of you who don't know, the most popular frame from Kafaru would be the duplex ultralight. Amazing frame, works for 99% of people. The tactical is a little bit beefier, but it's a little bit heavier. So my total pack weight, including a rain cover, which is only five ounces anyways, is 7.5 pounds. This is one of those areas where if you if you worked at it, you could probably you could definitely shave a couple pounds off the pack weight here. But I always go to perceived weight. If I have a seven and a half pound pack and I load it with 140 pounds, what's that 140 pounds feel like? Does it feel like 100 pounds or does it feel like 180 pounds? Because I can tell you, I have worn lighter packs. And loads feel heavier because they're just not built with the same rigidity and robust construction. I don't want a five and a half pound pack that makes a 140 pound load feel like 180 pounds. I'd rather have a two pound heavier pack that's able to displace that weight more effectively across my entire structure. So that's why I go with it. I just wanted to address that because I know some people are going to ask because if you look at most of the stone glacier models and most of the exo models, they're going to clock in at less than this weight. Now, none of those are going to have 9,200 cubic inches. So that's another thing to keep in mind. I would also argue none of those packs are going to feel the way a Kafaru pack feels with 150 pounds in it. Um, and that's the kind of like yardstick that I'm judging things by. Okay. Up next, let's break down, um, kind of camp and sleeping gear. So first up we have shelter and I'm, somebody asked a really interesting question that I'm going to save until the end. So right now I'm just going to address my final decision and what I went with. I will either be taking a Hilleberg solo or a Hilleberg acto. 
Now the Acto is about a three and a half pound shelter. The Solo is a five pound shelter. The Solo is freestanding. The Acto is not. The Solo is slightly bigger than the Acto. I originally bought the Acto on some advice from a friend. I think it's a phenomenal shelter. And then I had a phone conversation with John Barklow from Sitka and finding out where I was going and how big I was and all the rest of it. He's like, dude, you want the solo. He's like, You're, you'll be fine with the Acto, but I would run the solo if I were you. So I actually went out and, and bought the solo after having already bought the Acto. I am hoping before I leave to set both of these up and actually do a side-by-side comparison podcast and just take a whole podcast and break down the pros and cons of each and see how I fit. I am finding it more comforting to go with the solo at the moment because it's a freestanding shelter and I don't have to worry as much about um, pegs and dead men and uh, you know snow pegs and, and all the rest of it. So... The other point that John made that was really interesting is that you are at the mercy of your guidelines if you're not in a freestanding shelter. And he's kind of like a worst case scenario guy. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And he's like, well, the worst thing that could happen is in the middle, there's a storm in the middle of the night and you lose some pegs or pop some guidelines, your shelter's done. It will collapse on you and you're gonna have to get out and fuck with that in the middle of the night. Unless one of your poles snaps, which these are both red line tents from Hilleberg. So they're weighted for lots of snow. So there's no reason unless there's a manufacturer defect that any of those poles should snap. There is no reason that I should have a malfunction with the solo. So right now the plan is to go with the solo a little bit heavier, provides a little bit more security and a little bit more room. Um, I do have a Z-Pax bathtub ground sheet made out of Dyneema, which weighs three ounces that I normally take on all of my trips. I'm going to wait until I set up the solo because I want to see how thick the ground sheet is in that tent. I may not bring it if I don't think I need to, but even if I do, it's only three ounces. For sleeping pad, I'm going to take the X-Ped Hyperlite down mat, and that's the winter long and wide. So I'm six foot one, 255 pounds. I take big boy sleeping pads. I've never run this particular sleeping pad. I did a shitload of research. Again, being a side sleeper and being as heavy as I am, I don't like thermarest pads. I find technically they are a phenomenal pad. The, 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 the technical specifications and the durability and the quality of the materials is phenomenal. However, all their pads are only two and a half inches thick. So the moment I roll over onto one shoulder, I'm on the ground. So I've started looking. I replaced my summer and fall pad from the Thermarest NeoWear X-Lite. I went to the Q-Core, the Big Agnes Q-Core SLX this year. Loved it. I will never go back. Yes, it weighs a half a pound more. Don't give a shit. Slept like a fucking king. So when I was researching winter pads, I really took my time. I'm not so concerned about weight as I am about quality of sleep. Anybody who's ever spent extensive time in the backcountry knows that quality of sleep will dictate the quality of your hunt. If you're waking up feeling like a piece of shit every day and drag assing, that is going to negatively impact your hunt in a very real way. I will also say I'm taking the pump sack for this. Normally, I don't bother 
But this particular sleeping pad actually has down as an additional filler in with the baffling. And in these temperatures, my breath is going to condensate heavily inside the pad and it's going to negate the insulative qualities of the down. Basically, the down will just get wet and freeze and not do anything. So it comes with this super light pump sack. It weighs like two ounces. It basically looks like a plastic pillowcase. You open it up, shake it to scoop up some air, pinch it, put the cap on it and, and roll the air into the sleeping pad. I did a quick experiment here at home and it was like five pump sacks full. Whole mat was blown up. I wasn't going dizzy. I wasn't seeing stars from breathing into this fucking thing for, you know, 20 minutes, like some of my other sleeping pads. So again, there's, there's places to save weight and places not to save weight. Is this two ounces I want to save? No, it's not because the, the benefit, the cost benefit analysis is so favorable that there would really be no point in not taking this extra two ounces. Up next, we have the sleeping bag. I really went back and forth on this a long time. I'm a huge fan of down quilts as opposed to sleeping bags. But this particular hunt is very challenging because it could be very cold and very wet. Like I could be seeing thaw temperatures during the day with full on rain and freezing sleet and snow at night. Like it could be, you know, quite honestly, the worst conditions you could possibly imagine. And I just didn't want to risk a non-synthetic sleeping bag. And I'm going to let you into some of my theory or my strategy on this front, because I do have other down articles that I'm taking with me. So my last line of defense is the solo and the sleeping bag, the tent and the bag. So the way I'm approaching it is if all hell breaks loose and I'm just fucked because of whatever happens, I could always set up the Hilleberg solo and get in my synthetic sleeping bag and I would live. Like I could be, I could survive like that for a long time. I, that is not necessarily the case with a down sleeping bag or a less structurally sound shelter. So I'm making sacrifices in order to carry more weight with those two items that is allowing me to shave weight in other places because I can be riskier over here because I am addressing the risk over here, if it makes sense. So because I have this kind of like last line of defense strategy, I can do things like take my stone glacier puffy pants because if they get wet, ah, fuck worst case scenario, I can hop my sleeping bag. Um, and there's some other items that are a little bit more fragile and that aren't quite as robust that I am taking because I can fall back on this sleeping bag tent strategy. And not sure if I mentioned it, but that's the zero degree Fahrenheit Kefaru slick bag. It weighs in at a total of 4.1 pounds. And for the Canadians listening, that's good to about minus 18 degrees Celsius. Now, as I mentioned previously, and I'll get into it more, I am also taking puffy pants and a puffy jacket. So the plan, if the temperatures are that cold, is I will be sleeping in my hunt kit with puffy pants and a puffy jacket inside the sleeping bag. That should easily exceed minus 30 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit because they match up at minus 32. That should easily exceed 
uh, survivable conditions up to minus 30, 35 with no issues. So I feel very confident in my sleep system as a whole. And then finally, I'll be taking the Cetus Summit Eros Pillow, which is a very lightweight pillow. I love it. The cool thing about the Slick Pag is it kind of has this uh, smaller hood compartment that goes up behind your head. And the Cita Summit Eros pillow actually tucks into that little nook perfectly. So you don't have to worry about your pillow sliding off of your sleeping pad um, all over the place. One note I didn't make about the... Um, okay, so up next, let's move into clothing. And this is going to be what I'm wearing in. My philosophy on clothing has changed significantly the longer I hunt. It seems every year I hunt, I take less clothes to the point where most of my hunts, it's literally a single pair of socks and underwear. Um, the pants that I wear in, the shirt on my back, and like one extra, you know, puffy or fleece layer if necessary. Because just after doing it for so many years, you just keep taking shit and keep not using it. And like, Fresh underwear and socks are just not a luxury that's a requirement in the backcountry. If the weather's decent, you just take them off and air them out. Um, if it's not, sleeping in your sleeping bag will dry out most things at night anyways. So you will find my kit here is pretty sparse. Um, but this is based on experience and this is what I know I need in order to be comfortable. So for my top layer, this is my wicking layer. This will be my next to skin layer. I'm going to take a Sitka Core lightweight hoodie. My bottom wicking layer, these are new for this season for me. I'm going to take the Arcteryx Modus AR Long Johns. I really spent a lot of time comparing bottom Long Johns because this is a very challenging hunt in order to des design a gear system for because while it's very cold, it's extremely physically demanding. So the balance is going to be, how do I stay warm enough, yet not too warm that as soon as I start to hike, I don't sweat through all my gear. And then as soon as I stop, I get cold. So I actually own the Sitka heavyweight bottoms and they will be in the truck in case it's crazy cold, but I feel pretty confident these Modus ARs are going to be that perfect blend. I just want a little bit extra insulation on the legs. I rarely get cold on the legs. I rarely wear long johns at all. So I'm really just looking for like a little bit of extra insulative component on the legs. And then the, I'll get into my pants system in, in a minute. So my outer layer is going to be the Sitka Kelvin active jacket on top and the Sitka Timberline pants on the bottom. So just let me recap that real quickly. We're going to have the Arcteryx Modus AR long johns and then the Sitka Timberline pants on the bottom. And then we're going to have the Sitka Core lightweight hoodie and the Sitka Kelvin active jacket on top. That will be my primary like day-to-day -day kit. If it starts getting too hot, I can strip off the Kelvin active jacket. And if it starts getting too cold, I'll get into the additional layers that I'm bringing with me. So some other things that I'll be wearing uh, is just a ball cap, a Sitka ball cap. My boots are going to be the last Sportiva Nepal GTXs. Um, I've, I've been breaking these boots in for the last three months. They're fucking crazy. I'm really excited to get into the mountains with these bad boys. Socks. I will be taking the darn tough 
over-the-calf socks. I like socks that come up to my knees. I hate socks that like bunch up down in my boots. So um, I always wear over-the-calf socks. Funny story, I wear the same socks in summer as I do in winter. I find the darn tough socks particularly do a very good job of keeping me warm without allowing my feet to sweat. I find it's more important to not get sweaty feet than to have overly insulated feet. Unless you're in like a tree stand, long glassing type situation, which we will be getting into here and I'll address that in a moment. For gators, I'm going to run the outdoor research crocodiles. I'll have my Apple watch. This is a bit of a pro tip. The arcade stretchy belt. It took me years to find a belt that I actually did everything that I wanted it to. I don't like nylon webbing belts. I find them hard to get tight enough. And then as soon as I warm up and everything gets a bit loose, the belt's now too loose. And I also find that it digs into my hips with the hip pads from the backpack. I was actually on a business trip with my business partner and he had this like stretchy belt and it's like some fashion brand. It's just called Arcade. You can go Google it. I bought mine off Amazon for 30 bucks and it's basically like just a stretchy fabric belt and it, I, I've worn it for hunting the past three years in a row and I love it. Um, I can do it up a little bit extra tight in the morning. And then even once everything gets warm and loosens up, the belt still stays nice and snug. And the kind of stretchy fabric is thin enough that it doesn't bunch up on my hips and create those pressure points where the hip pads dig in. And then for trekking poles, I'm going to be bringing my Black Diamond Trail Ergo Corks. Now, it might seem odd that they're on this list, but the way I've built my spreadsheet is that Everything within that particular section that I just read is not included in the pack weight. So the rationale there is it's the clothing, clothing I'm wearing and the poles in my hand. So I don't consider that part of my kind of weight on back, if you will. That's why the ergo poles are in there. Okay, so now let's move on to the clothing that I'm packing so my top windstop layer is going to be a Sitka mountain jacket. This is a new piece of gear to me this year that I originally bought for my Alberta muley hunt, but also took on my BC elk hunt. And I would say it's the biggest surprise for me of 2020. It is a phenomenal piece of gear. It, it, it's not too warm. It stops the wind perfectly. It's very light. It packs down next to nothing, and it's mildly water repellent. So it's almost like this semi-perfect layer. Um, I never put too much stock in a windbreak layer before until I really started listening to more of what John Barklow had to say. And it's a real key element of all of his gearing systems. And sometimes he even incorporates two windstop layers, like a close to skin windstop layer and an external windstop layer. And I found the increase in effectiveness of my insulation layers when coupled with a windstop layer, it's like a force multiplier. Like I'm getting a two to three X return on my insulation layers. So put that in the back of your mind. I think it's a piece of gear everybody should be adding to their kit. Now, for my insulating layer up top, I have three choices here. I have the Stone Glacier puffy jacket. I have the First Light Chamberlain puffy jacket. Now, I own both of those. 
The First Light Chamberlain is gigantic. I think it weighs close to 30 ounces. It's basically like wearing a sleeping bag. It is insanely warm. Basically, both of these items will be with me. And when I go to leave the truck, I'll, want, I'll run one last weather check. And depending on the temperatures that are looking to come in over the next five to 10 days, that will be the, kind of the last chance to kind of adjust my kit. And I will either take that first light or the Sitka. Now, the third element is going to be a Sitka Kelvin Down windstop layer. This is in direct competition with the First Light Chamberlain, except it has a hybrid down synthetic insulation and it has a windstop layer built directly into it. Now, my buddy Jeff Lander is going to lend me this piece of gear. So this could also negate the need for the Sitka Mountain Jacket because I would already have a windstop layer. So again, I've got three kind of pieces to choose from here. And depending on what the weather looks like it's going to do, I'll make a, a, a last minute decision at the trailhead about which one of these I'm going to take. So as I mentioned before, I will have the Sitka Core heavyweight long johns at the truck in case I need them. For my bottom insulating layer, I will be bringing my Stone Glacier Grumman down pants. For my hat, I'll have the Sitka Jetstream beanie. Now gloves are very interesting. I'm basically built a system around the Outdoor Research Alti gloves. So this is like a three-in-one system. So there's a liner glove and a shell glove. So you could wear the liners, you could wear the shells, or you could wear the liners with the shells. They're like a waterproof shell, like high-end glove with like, um, I think they're a merino liner. In addition to this, I've brought two other pairs of gloves that can be substituted for liners that could also be worn on their own. The idea is I want gloves to cycle throughout the day. So as my hands get damp for whatever reason, whether it's from sweat or whether it's from just gripping wet things, every three to four hours, I want to be able to switch those liner gloves to keep my hands warm. And then every night, I'll have the opportunity to dry out those liner gloves, either if I choose to have a fire or I can chuck them in the foot of my sleeping bag and my body heat will force the moisture out of them overnight. Up next are snowshoes. So I'm going to use the MSR Lightning Ascent. Now, I got the 30-inch version, which is the longest you can buy because I'm a large dude. I also bought the additional six inch tail. So this is a really handy attachment to have because essentially I will be hiking up a drainage, up a river bottom, a frozen river bottom the majority of the time. Then once I actually see a goat, I'll be making a play up one of the sides of the canyon to try and get up top and make a play on the goat. So while I'm down in the relatively brush-free river bottom, I can have the tails on and I'll have the benefit of more surface area to stay higher up on the snow. When I go into the trees, I can really quickly detach the tails. I'll be a little bit more mobile, but I won't float as much on top of the snow. So it's a nice compromise there. Now for crampons, I got the Black Diamond Sabretooth Pros. I talked about this on an earlier podcast, but what crampons you buy is heavily dictated by what boots you own. So I specifically got the La Sportivas because I wanted full crampon compatibility. And that's what these Sabretooth Pros are. They have a, they have a, a there's a toe welt and a heel welt on the La Sportiva Nepal's. 
and I clip on these crampons and they're extremely stable and durable. They're pretty hardcore. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to use those as well. Now, going back to the issue about long glassing periods and cold feet, another piece of gear I'm bringing with me are the Mech Expedition Plus booties. So these are essentially a down booty that's actually synthetic insulation that has a bit of um bit of a tread on the bottom of the boot. They're not soft fabric. They're not like nylon all the way around. So you can walk around in them in the snow. So the game plan here is if it is that cold or if I do stop for that long, I will definitely be wearing these when I sleep at night, but I could also take off my boots and put my feet in the booties um, for long glassing sessions if I had to. Now, one note that you want to take into consideration is if it's that cold, you want to make sure that your boots aren't going to freeze while they're off. So you would either want to wrap them in your sleeping bag or put them in your pack and then sit on them. Or you can even put um, another trick in the morning to thaw your boots is take heated water and pour it in Nalgene bottles and then stick the Nalgene bottles down inside your boots and that'll warm up your boots for you. Um, just want to make a quick note that like, I don't recommend taking your boots off in like minus 25 and just letting them sit there for three hours and then putting them back on your feet. That's not a good idea unless you're mitigating that some way. Okay. Let's get into optics. Cause this is kind of like one of my favorite subjects to talk about. The last podcast I did was solely dedicated to optics. So if you haven't listened to that and you have some questions after listening to this episode, go back and listen to number five. You still want to know something, hit me up on Instagram. So for my spotting scope, I will be taking a Zeiss Victory Harpia 95 millimeter, also known as the Eye of God. This is a heavy spotter. This is a really heavy spotter. So this thing weighs in at just over 4.6 pounds. And like I talked about last week, we could get into a big argument about saving weight on spotters and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, I firmly believe, suck it up, buttercup. You want the good glass, carry the good spotter. Next, I'll have my Zeiss Victory SF 10 by 42s. I recently just got an outdoorsman's post attached to these. So everything will be cross mountable with my outdoorsman's tripod system as well. I also have a pair of Swarovski SLC 15 by 56s that I will not be bringing on this hunt because it's just, I'm already carrying too much weight. I'm going too far back in. And to be honest, the type of detail that I'm looking for on these goats I don't think the 15s are going to give me anything that the 10s aren't. I'm going to have to go up to the spotter. See, if you were coos in, in, in Arizona, I would almost take the 15s over the spotter because like you can tell a coos is worth making a play on with a pair of 15s. You don't need to be counting points and all the rest of it. But with the Billy, it's not just enough, or I, I should be more specific. Seeing a goat, it's not just enough to say, is that a good size goat? You're trying to discriminate the sex of the goat from a very far distance. So you need a high degree of specificity from your optics. And the only way to do that is a really high powered spotting scope. So going to leave the 15s, going to take the Harpia instead. Going to take a loophole RX 1600 rangefinder. Um, 
Now for tripods, I went back and forth on this. And what I'm going to take is the Outdoorsman's Medium Compact, but I am going to bring my center post extension, which adds an additional 12 inches of range. Because there's going to be so much snow, with the Medium Compact, you kind of have to sit right on the ground or you end up too high for it to be real useful. And because of how much snow there is, I'm not sure that's even going to be possible. So I'm not going to go so far as to bring the tall because I think it's unnecessary size and weight. Uh, but I think putting that center additional center post extension on the Medium Compact is going to be the perfect blend of practicality and weight ratio. One last note with optics is I will be using a phone scope. I'm not going to bother bringing the adapter for my tens. I'm only going to be bringing the adapter for my spotting scope. One small note on the Alberta muley hunt, I did lose my spotting scope attachment. So when I decided to replace it, I bought two because it's kind of such an inexpensive piece. It's one of those pieces that I've decided that I'm just always going to have two of from now on because it's kind of easy to lose and you can just have a spare one in your possibles pouch. Weighs like an ounce. You'll never notice it. And that way you're never going to lose the adapter on your phone case because it sits right on there. But this second component that goes on the spotting scope, that could get easily lost. So I'm bringing two of those just in case. Okay, let's talk weapon. I'll be using a Tika T3X 300 wind mag, and I'm going to have a Javelin Pro Hunt bipod on that. I'm going to use a Kafaru gun bearer for my sling. Some of you might not know what this is. It's essentially a, a sling-like device that attaches to the hip pad of your belt on the backpack and allows you to carry your gun in front of your chest with this little like draw cord that you pop and you get quick access to your gun without taking off your pack or unslinging a rifle. Unslinging a rifle is quick, but to be honest, after walking around in the woods with a slung rifle for years, the fucking thing falls off constantly. It slips off your shoulder and it bangs on things and I hate it. But having the gun all the way attached on the back of your backpack makes it too hard to get to in kind of like a quick to draw like scenario. I have had two occasions when I was able to shoot deer specifically because I was using the Kafaru gun bear, literally walking along a trail, bump a deer, pop this one cord, lift the rifle, shoot the deer. I feel very confident there was no other system I could have been using that provided such stability. A sling, yes, would have worked, but I also would have been dealing with it falling off my shoulder every 13 seconds for the fucking four hours I was climbing up the mountain. So for me, the Kafaru gun bearer is a no-brainer. Now for a scope on that rifle, I'm going to be running the Vortex Viper PST Gen 2, 3 to 15 by 44, first focal plane. Now there is the potential that I'm going to be swapping that out for a Zeiss scope. And if I do, I will, I'm not a big fan of Vortex glass as a whole, and I do want to replace this scope. So if I do end up switching it out for a Zeiss, I'm going to do kind of a mini series on that, like what the decision process was, what glass I decided to go with, how I swapped it out, recited the whole nine yards. But for now, that's what's on there. Now I shoot uh, Hornady Super Performance SST 185 grain bullet out of my 300 wind mag, and I'm zeroed at 200 yards 
which I also covered in another podcast. But for me, that's kind of an ideal zero if you're ever shooting, let's say 400 and out. If I was shooting 300 and in, I would probably argue to zero it for 100. The only exception for this is that my rangefinder actually has some ballistic data in it, but it's all built on a 200 yard zero. So if I want to plug in my gun and my bullet, it assumes I have it zeroed it at 200. So for me to take advantage of those capacities, so for me to take advantage of that capability, I have to have it at zeroed at 200 anyways. Luckily, that's what I want to have it zeroed at. Now, camera gear. I will have a Sony a7 III uh, with a Sennheiser MKE 200 microphone. I'll be using a 24 to 70 millimeter Sigma art lens, and that's my main camera. That's what I do all my cinemagraphic filming with. That's what I do all my own like personal interview stuff with. Um, I love that setup. I just switched from the 24 mil to the 24 by 70. It increased the weight of my camera by almost a pound, but it really increased my versatility. Being able to zoom in to that extra 70 mil really increases the versatility of the lens itself and helps with the storytelling because I find I have a more diverse toolkit I can draw from in regards to what types of shots I can actually frame and what type of stories I can actually capture. In addition to that, I'm going to have two GoPro Hero 9s. And for mounting devices, I have a head strap, I have a Joby Gorilla Pod, and I have a, basically this mountain bike handlebar adapter that I've adapted for my trekking pole. So I have three different places that I can put the GoPros. I'll be bringing four batteries for the GoPro and two batteries for the Sony. In addition to that, I will have one large, I'm pretty sure it's a 40,000 milliamp hour anchor charger that would probably give me, let's say, one to three phone charges, one to three GoPro charges, and one to three Sony charges, which should be enough to get me through the week. The Sony cameras are unbelievably efficient when it comes to battery powers. GoPros are pigs, but as long as you're not running them all the time and you're very selective about when you turn them on, you can squeeze a lot of life out of those batteries. Okay, now we've got some kind of miscellaneous gear. Normally I take a little Z seat for a glassing pad that's just like 16 inches by 16 inches. I'm gonna mix it up this year based on some feedback I've had from a couple of different people. And I actually bought a whole Z rest, like a whole Z light pad, the Thermarest, that's kind of the squishy foam. And I'm taking three quarters of it. And the reason I did that is because with the snow, I can also use it uh, to lie prone on to take a shot. And if I'm glassing, I could actually arc it back into the snow and kind of lean back and it should be able to keep me dry as I glass as well. Also with the smaller pads, by the time you sit down into the snow, because you're deep in the snow, the snow's still touching the sides of your pants and you end up getting wet. So my goal was to have a bigger seat that would enable me to stay drier for longer. Um, I will have my possibles pouch. I'm not going to get into everything that's in here. It's like little weird shit like Dyneema cord and some fire starter and um, Luco tape and like weird little shit that I've just found useful over the years. Maybe what I'll do on one of the upcoming podcasts for the gear section is I'll just do a 15 minute breakdown of everything that I have 
in my possibles pouch. Some additional stuff, I'll have chapstick, uh, wind checker. Um, my kill kit will have a Havilon Piranha knife, a couple of game bags. I think I'm only going to take two game bags. I use the uh, Caribou Gear Carnivore game bags, and they're like meant for elk, for boned out meat, and they're quite large. And I feel pretty confident that I can fit front and hind quarters in one bag, like uh, one front, one hind in one bag, one front, one hind in the other. So I may only bring two bags total just to save some weight. For water preapplication, I'm going to use a SteriPen. I've used a SteriPen for four years now. As long as you have a fresh battery with you, that's the only thing that can fuck you with the SteriPen. And it has never failed me. So I highly recommend the SteriPen, especially in cold temperatures like these. Most filter-based water filtration systems are going to end up freezing once they get wet and then they're useless. So I don't really know of another mechanism that would compete with the SteriPen in this type of environment. Anyways, I'll have my inReach, which is essentially a satellite texting device for safety. I have my iPhone 12 Pro Max. And then I will also have 20 feet of eight millimeter nylon static cord. I want to make a quick note about that. Most climbing rope is dynamic. If you're climbing up a mountain and you fall, you want there to be give in that rope. So that when you hit that last anchor, it's not a dead stop and you have like almost a bungee cord effect so that your back doesn't snap in half. For what I will be using rope for, which could be lowering meat down off of a cliff or lowering myself down off something, I specifically wanted a static cord. And again, I got to give a nod to John Barklow. He was very clear about this when we spent some time on the phone together that I'm not an experienced climber. I'm not going to be rappelling down fucking cliffs and I do not need dynamic climbing rope. What he said, what you need is static equipment cord. So that's what I bought. And you can tell it instantly as soon as you pick it up. It doesn't feel like climbing rope. Okay, onto the cook kit. I'm going to have an MSR reactor with a 1.7 liter pot. And I'm going to bring three 227 gram fuel canisters. I've done some testing and I feel very confident that I can melt water for two days and cook for two days out of one of these canisters. So six days, three canisters. I should have cleared that up at the beginning. The goal is six days. However, I know I can push my body at least one full day without food, without an issue. So if I absolutely had to, like it was the last day and I finally found a goat and I wanted to push it one more day, I do have that capacity to go one extra day. So I'm planning for six with the potential exception that I might stretch it to seven. I'll have a Sea to Summit titanium spork and I'm going to be bringing a small Bic lighter times three. I always keep random lighters in different parts of my setup. So I might have one of my first aid kit, one of my possibles pouch, and one of my bino kit. And then unless I completely fall in with everything that I'm wearing into a river, it's highly unlikely that all three of those would get wet at any one point in time. And I normally have at least two of them inside Ziploc bags of some kind. Some additional stuff. My primary headlamp is going to be a Black Diamond Revolt 350. I just picked this one up. I've had an older version of the Black Diamond Revolt for quite some time, and I really like that lamp. And they just came out last year with kind of a brighter version with a more powerful battery. So 
The 350 will be my primary headlamp. And then I'll have the older version as my backup in my possibles kit in case something goes wrong. I've got a first aid kit and I'll be bringing lots of toilet paper. One interesting point to note, I always carry baby wipes. I don't think I'm going to bother on this one. The last time I took baby wipes on a winter-like hunt, they kept freezing. And they're really uncomfortable to wipe your ass with frozen baby wipes. And because there's so much snow around, you could always just, you know, rub some toilet paper in some snow, get it a bit damp, and you still kind of have the same cleaning properties of a wet wipe. So I think I'm just going to keep it simple and take pure um, toilet paper and not have to worry about my wet wipes freezing. Okay, the last section and the one about which I've probably received the most questions is my food. So every day, I'm going to have 1.74 pounds of food. Now, that's just the weight of the food itself. It doesn't take into account the individual packaging on the food. So we're just going to call it two pounds for round numbers. And it's 3,600 calories per day, which is a fairly decent number for that weight. I'd like to share some basic principles that I have when I approach designing a food set systems for these backcountry trips. I am not a high fat guy. There's a big trend right now in backcountry hunting. Here's how it breaks down. Protein is four calories per gram. Carbohydrates are four calories per gram. Fats are nine calories per gram. So if you think about it, you can get twice the energy for half the weight with fat as compared to carbohydrates. This is why everybody's on this big trend. What people are failing to recognize is that fat is a different energy source than carbohydrates. Fat is primarily a energy storage device. It is not an energy utilization device unless you are in ketosis, which probably none of you are. So I like moderate amount of fats, but I don't bring a ton of fat because I want the fuel that I'm putting into my body at that moment to be able to be used right away. Now, is there place for some additional fats at night to fuel up for the next day? Absolutely. But don't fall into this trap where, you know, fats are more calories per gram, so I should have mostly fats. Because from a biomechanical perspective, it is not an efficient fuel utilization mechanism. It just isn't. Your body doesn't use it that way. You're better off having carbs. Um, we could get into, you know, oxidization and the different energy utilization mechanisms and all the rest of it, but we don't need to. Just understand for backcountry hunting purposes, carbs are a superior energy source. So I try and hit a minimum of 200 to 250 grams, like one gram per pound of body weight of protein every day. And then I try and make the most of everything else carbs. If I have been having like 100 to 200 grams of fats, that's great, but I don't go out of my way to with these F-bombs and like nut butters and all this other shit that people are putting in. And that's fine. You can do it if you want. I just don't believe it's as effective as the carbs. So here's how things break down. For breakfast, I have a Peak Refuel Mountainberry Granola, and I put two scoops of chocolate protein powder in that with water. And there's already like a dry milk powder in there. It's fucking delicious. It's essentially like chocolate milk and granola with fucking berries. Like 
I look forward to breakfast every single morning. And I don't have to boil extra water. Like it's not a hot breakfast, which it makes it nicer. And I don't have any dish cleanup because you eat it all in the pouch. Um, so I always have a hot coffee in the morning. So I am boiling water, but I don't need to boil water for my breakfast. And then for my snack, I have these like little sweet and salty mixes. They're like nuts and crunchy things. For lunch, I have a Green Belly Meals lunch kit. They are 650 calories and weigh five ounces. I can't recommend anything else for lunch as much as I recommend Green Belly Meals. They do get a little bit much after a, a really long hunt because they're not as exciting as like a, like a warm lunch would be. However, for convenience and calorie density and nutrition quality, nothing even comes close. I love these things. Some more snacks I bring are Honey Stinger Waffles, Trail Mix, Cliff Blocks. I get the ones with the additional caffeine. And then Cliff Builder Protein Bars. I just happen to really like those protein bars. For dinner, I'm going to have a Peak Refuel. I have a bunch of different, like Fettuccine Alfredo. I don't really give a shit. I tend not to like the rice ones, but I will say after trying hundreds of, of dehydrated meals, on the whole... Peak Refuel seems to be the best quality. I'd love to try some off-grid, but those guys only run like batches once a week, and I'm not going to sit there and try and log in and buy into your bullshit marketing scheme where you release like one quail taco meal every fucking week. Like, it's just not what I'm into. If I want to buy something, just have it on your website so I can buy it. So I really like Peak Refuel. I like the quality of the meals. I like the taste of the meals. I also like the protein content. Mountain House tend to have really low protein content, which tells you something about the quality of the meat sources that they're using. Most peak refuels have 35 to 45 grams of protein per meal, which is quite high for a dehydrated meal. So I like those a lot. And then I'll probably bring some type of like big sausage, like a, and this would be the, the one exception, exception that's like a really fat, dense fuel source. Um, there's like this deli down the street from my house that has these crazy sausages. They're like a quarter pound a piece. I'll probably put one per day. And I like that because I can just have a couple bites of it every now and then. And then for drinking, I'll bring meal. I hate drinking water. Like I can't tell you how much I despise it. I have to put some kind of flavoring in it. So these meals basically have electrolytes and flavoring, and I just squirt it right in my Nalgene, fill it up with water, Bob's your uncle, it's delicious. So to recap that real quick, we're going two pounds per day, 3,600 calories per day, trying to hit 200 to 250 grams of protein per day, focusing on the rest being carbohydrates, and then wherever we pick up some fats, that's okay too. Okay, so that was a lot of information but that wraps up the gear list for now. There might be some substitutions that I make between now and the time I leave. And like I say, I'll keep you guys in the loop as far as my decision process between the solo and the acto. However, there are still some questions that were posted on Instagram that I'm going to roll through before we wrap things up. So T-Bone says, what water filtration do you use and why? I mentioned this. It's a Steri pen. I find it... Um, far more reliable and easier than any other system. I've been drinking with it for the last four years and I've never got sick. Works for me. Highly recommend it. 
Adam says, what are you going to eat? Um, I just went through that pretty extensively. Um, one note I didn't make is that I like, um, repetition in my food. And I know that seems odd. I've heard other people recommend the exact opposite. I like having the exact same thing every day because then I can be like, oh, this is when I have my honey stinger waffle. This is when I have my protein bar. And oh, I know I've already had those three snacks. So I've got these two left to go. I don't like not knowing where I'm at with my food. So I pack the exact, except for, um, the green belly meal, there's five or six different flavors. I don't know which one I'm going to get per day. And the peak refuel dinners, there's three or four kinds that I like, and I don't know which one of those I'm going to have every day. Other than that, everything that I eat is the same every day. And here's the funny part. It's been that way for the last three years. I've literally packed the exact same food for the last three years. Um, there might be some new stuff I start to mix in, but I've just found it works perfectly. It's cost effective. It can go in my storage locker for six months at a time until I go on my next hunt. And it works really well. Might not work for everybody, but that's how I like it. Fish and Game Club said food weights versus calories. In general, you want to be conscious of the fact that you're taking calorically dense food. That's the other reason why I've settled on the foods that I have. You can look on the weight of the package and then you look at how many calories and you want to be pretty close to as calorie dense as possible. You're never going to be perfect, but the more dense, the better. Um, Josh Laughlin says, what type of synthetic sleeping bag you're going to use an info on it, weight, etc." So like I said, Kafaru slick bag, I've been running it for the last four years. It's good to minus 20 Celsius, zero degree Fahrenheit weighs 4.12 pounds. It's filled with uh, ClimaShield Apex insulation. It's a continuous filament insulation, so it doesn't require baffling. And why that's important is that baffling requires stitching and stitching creates holes. So there's no quilting on a Kafaru slick bag. It's just like one flat bag. And then the stuffing just stays flat on the inside because it's a continuous filament um, insulation. So that's the other reason I like the slick bag quite a lot. Um, my buddy bird grabber wanted to know about socks. Again, I really like those darn tough. I've also had really good success with smart wool, but I just found them harder to get. You can get the darn tough over the calf socks on Amazon for like 25 bucks a pair and they last forever. So I highly recommend those. I've heard other people talk about the farm defeat or field defeat. And I've heard good things, but I've never used them. So I can't comment personally. Kerwin asks, what are your expectations? So this is, I re I was really happy when I saw this question come in because I think it's a, a great thing to be thinking about. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm bringing a goat home. I, and it may come across as arrogant, but I operate under the assumption that I'm going to be successful until I'm forced to confront the opposite. So until the moment I get in my truck without a goat at the end of the hunt, I assume I'm going to kill a goat. That goes back to that mindset shit we were talking about earlier. It's not a matter of arrogance. It's not even a matter of, of overconfidence. It's a matter of creating the optimum mind frame to facilitate success. 
if I allow myself to introduce doubt, I've already given myself a back door. You know, at the beginning of this planning stage, I found myself saying to some people, you know, this is a really challenging hunt. Even if I just went up there, felt it out and figured out the lay of the land and then went up there next year and had success, that would be a win. And the longer I thought about that, the more it made me want to puke. That's just not who I am. I don't want to get up there and get the lay of any fucking land. I want to go kill a goat and I will do everything within my power in order to make that happen. Now I might still fail. And if you've listened to my content for a while, you know, I'm okay with this. That's the nuance here. It's okay to assume you're going to be successful as long as you're okay with recognizing the fact that you might fail sometimes. It doesn't mean that you're a piece of shit. It doesn't mean that you're not a good hunter. It just means that it doesn't come together all the time. But I also don't think that should introduce the space for doubt to creep in because, you know, much like Dune, you know, fear is the mind killer. Doubt is the hunt killer. And the more doubt you allow in, the more hunts are going to fail. And this wasn't something I got until the second, third, or fourth year that I was like really hunting hard and started to stack up some successes on a regular basis. And I realized the more I believed I was going to be successful, the more often I was successful. So in answer to your questions, what are my expectations? I expect to kill a goat and I will expect to kill a goat until I'm proven wrong. Jesse asks, do you have your AST1 course? So this is an AVI safety course, an avalanche safety course. The answer is no, I do not. I talked to some people who took it and I honestly don't believe that training at that low of a level was going to do me any good. Would it have been beneficial to have even higher level of training? I think yes. I'm going to, I'm going to introduce an analogy and see if this explains it better. I also contemplated getting some basic climbing training just so I could like belay and repel and like do some like basic stuff. And I realized that I was probably going to be creating more danger for myself than safety by kind of tricking myself into thinking I knew something I didn't. And so I recognize my limitations. I don't know how to climb. I will not be rigging off my rope and, and climbing anywhere because it's not my specialty. And I don't know much about avalanches. I know where to be on the mountain to be at a lower risk of being hit by one. And I simply won't put myself in elevated areas of danger to the best of my ability. So that's why I decided to not take it. Um, maybe I'll take it at some point in the future. Who sees? Who knows? Okay. Taylor asks, how much insulation do you like in a boot for that sort of hunt? This is a very interesting question as well. And the funny thing is they don't actually publish how much insulation is in a La Sportiva. If I had to guess, I'd say it would be similar to two, between 200 and 400 grams, maybe like a Thinsulate in a regular boot. It's hard to tell. They're warm. That's for sure but they're not like a Baffin. They're not like 600 grams. I know that for sure. Uh, this goes back to what I was saying earlier that I find it more important for my feet to breathe, especially on a hunt that's going to be so physically demanding. I also know an individual who's done this exact same hunt before and wore these exact same boots and they performed 
very well for him. So I feel confident that they will also perform well for me. It was a sticking point for a while. I was looking at getting the Schnee's granite, 600 grams. And I was really worried that as soon as I started to hike, I was going to get sweaty feet. And then as soon as I stopped, they were going to cool down. So maybe I'll do a bit of a, a breakdown on these boots after I get back. But I don't have an exact answer for how much insulation. But in principle, I would say enough to keep your feet warm when you're not walking, but not so much that they get sweaty when you are walking, which I recognize is a bit of a roundabout answer. Corey says, will you be using a TP tent uh, bracket requires tent spikes bracket or self-standing for frozen ground? I almost took, I have a Kafaru mega tarp and I have a, an, a, an ultralight titanium Smith cylinder stove that fits in that tarp. I've used that before on hunts, late season, snowy hunts with phenomenal success. I was, my initial plan was to take that. And then after talking with people who had done this hunt, once you get off of the river bottom, you're going to be fighting for space. You're going to be looking for like little flat spots where you can fit your tent. So the smaller the footprint, the better. Um, so that's why I decided against the larger tarp. I also, the amount of gear I was taking just kept growing and growing and growing. And so I decided I would go with the synthetic bag and no stove. An, a one Another solution could have been a down bag with a stove because much like I noted, my last line of defense was a synthetic bag and tent. If you had a stove with you and you had a down bag that got wet, you could use the stove to dry out the down bag. One thing to note here is there's several different ways to skin a cat. And I'm not going to say my way is any more right than anybody else's way. It's just the way that I've decided on for this hunt. So I love the idea of TP stove combos, but I decided not to do it, even though my first instinct was to do it for this particular hunt. Okay. So that's all the questions that we had. As usual, this went on longer than expected, but I think we're able to cover a lot of great ground. Like I said at the beginning, if you could like, comment, subscribe, it would really help out the podcast. If I can be of any more help, you can email me, jay at mindfulhunter.com. Hit me up on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, or go to my YouTube channel, mindful underscore hunter. Contact me through any of those ways, and I'm more than happy to help out wherever I can. Thanks for tuning in.